Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are discussing the dark history of the Eastern Ozarks, specifically how Little Egypt in Southern Illinois has surprising connections to the Ozarks and the Egyptian influence on Ozarks culture. We will get back to that in a minute, but first we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Substack, or about any other podcast platform. So many people may be surprised to hear that there are a number of Egyptian place names in the Ozarks. What do you think will surprise people about the connections between Illinois and the Ozarks? I think people may be surprised that there are undeniable connections, but also that the origins of those connections have been mostly lost to time. We will return to Little Egypt and the Ozarks, but first we want to invite you to like, follow and subscribe to Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, as well as your favorite podcast platform. We also invite you to become a Dark Ozarks subscriber on Facebook. On the Dark Ozarks Facebook page, click subscribe, have your login information ready, and join Dark Ozarks behind the scenes for only $4.99 per month. Your $4.99 per month subscription allows you to come with us on paranormal investigations, deep dive research, and topics too controversial for public view. The next 100 subscribers will be entered in a drawing for a free Dark Ozarks t-shirt and an exclusive signed first run copy of the book, Dark Ozarks, The Spook Light. Subscribe today to be entered in the drawing. And now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts for sale at darkozarks.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We encourage you to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online on Facebook and at the website alwaysbuyingbooks.com for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history, and more. Not to mention, the building is haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and great food in a historical building with the noir past. And yes, their building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. I'm already thinking about more paranormal books. And I'm already thinking about a nice English stout with a grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Sounds pretty good. Yes, it does. It really does. Really interesting subjects uh, tonight and drawing parallels and connections between Southern Illinois and the Ozarks. There are a lot more connections culturally, folklorically, and historically than you might think. There, there really are. Um, and I think it's, 
in part sort of our unconscious um, segmenting areas into state lines and geographic uh, limitations. In this case, the other side of the Mississippi. And um, so we tend to think of Illinois as that upper Midwest state of Chicago and the entire state is not Chicago. Well, having grown up in Illinois, <clears throat> grown up in central Illinois and Peoria County, I can, and having now been and started doing research in Southern Illinois, <clears throat> I can attest to how vastly different these cultures are. That I, that's very true. I mean, and that's what really struck me too. I, I'd had some exposure to Southern Illinois that gave me a few of those hints, but not to the extent that I found in the research. Um, uh, really uh, more at home with the lore and everything sounds straight out of the Ozarks. Yes, it does. And this is undeniably a Borderlands episode. So we mm -hmm. are doing research on an area that is not directly Ozarks proper, but it is it is Ozarks adjacent. And the the connections, uh, the associations, the cross ties of culture and folklore validate uh, the research. And along with that comes one of the perhaps most alluring mysteries, certainly for me, which is the name of uh, this hand, <laughs> large handful of counties in the southern tip of Illinois uh, bordered by the Mississippi River on the west, the Ohio River on the southeast, the uh, Wabash River on the, uh, on the east and uh, along with the Indiana state line. <clears throat> this uh, sort of, uh, this triangle, this inverted pyramid in, in the tip of Illinois is not only culturally and geologically very diverse, very fascinating uh, with layers and layers of history and layers of prehistory uh, associated with Cahokia uh, and other mound locations across the tip of Illinois. But it's called Little Egypt. And there's a number of articles that attempt to explain the name, but quite frankly, the more you dig into those articles, the more you dig into the journals and into the research, we find a number of different reasons that point to the possibility of why that why it might be called Little Egypt. And it has been undeniably referenced as Little Egypt, uh, certainly as early, if not earlier than the 1830s, uh, all the way into the 20th century but nobody can quite land on an absolute reason. No, um, and, it's, and it's really different than what it was referred to before that too. It's not even that it kind of grew out of what people referred to it previously. It, it, it's a complete different uh, chapter in the book, so to speak. Um, Originally, the area has almost a more mysterious name of the old soldiers reservation, and it goes back to pre-American ownership, to the time when the Spanish and the French at various times owned the area, and um, it was basically populated with 
trappers and soldiers coming out of the uh, Indian Wars and the American Revolution. And we've talked various times about how people would come into the Ozarks to lose themselves after war or to reinvent themselves. And these soldiers did that in Southern uh, Illinois. And to the point that that's what it was referred to as the soldier's reservation. Mm-hmm. And, and then, talking, oh, go very ahead. Early, like late, late 18th century. We're talking 1780s, 1790s. Yes, yes. And then over the course of somewhere over the next 50 years, it started being referred to as Little Egypt. And then certainly by the Civil War, it that was sort of entrenched as what it was referred to as, even though uh, there's really no consensus as to the reason. I, I, it's almost like people started looking back and saying, okay, so why do we call it Little Egypt and trying to come up with a reason instead of having a real origin story? And yet it was an important enough reason that so many of the place names uh, reference Egypt. Uh, we have we have Thebes, we have Cairo, uh, we have Karnak. Of course, not very so far south, we have Memphis. Yeah, very true, very true. Um, and, and it's on, and, and perhaps it is just a little bit piecemeal that there there are various factors that came together for it to make sense, but it's almost a, originally, not to make light, but almost a inside ha-ha, uh, <laughs> the area kind of looks like the Nile Delta, or there's that, references <laughs> of it being almost like going into the, you know, the exodus from Egypt, things like that. Yes, I mean, we we have we have some competing we have a number of competing stories that all contribute and it's it's a question as you already mentioned was it hindsight um or 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 did these things contribute in real time i think one of <laughs> one of the the fascinating references uh, to me uh goes back to the 1790s approximately 1799 and john badgley who was a Baptist missionary to the Illinois country, as it was called, um, said that he was riding high top the bluffs overlooking the American bottoms in the area of modern day Edwardsville and referenced <clears throat> uh, the land of, of Goshen. Of course, this is a reference to Exodus in, uh, in the Bible. And <clears throat> The, the idea of, um, and actually dating back to Genesis, uh, the latter portions of Genesis, in which the Israelites settle in Egypt uh, to begin with, not the exodus out, but the settlement in. And the, the idea that it was good land. Exactly. And of course, you know, Egypt was known as, you know, for, for its uh, fertile land. And so, um, and if you go back as places in North America were settled, those place names go all the way back, including Goshen, which go, I think the first Goshen in America was is in New York. And then there are a number of them. I don't, 
and I think by the time you get to the Mississippi, you start losing those place names as much. Um, but there's certainly a concentration of those in, in sure. Little Egypt. Yes, there are. Um, Thebes, uh, which I visited <laughs> March of last year, being one of them, one of the most notable. But <clears throat> an interesting uh, inclusion on this being that uh, Napoleon invaded Egypt in 1799. That's true. So, so in world events, Egypt was in the consciousness of people as this area was being settled more. And so that that is very interesting. Now, uh, one of the better known references to Little Egypt is the uh, the unbelievably cold winter of 1831 that essentially destroyed the grain harvests in northern Illinois and central Illinois and mm -hmm. very memorable <clears throat> and this was not the first cold winter one of the earlier cold winters in 1824 and then again in 1831 and because the very fertile uh, land uh, farmland in southern Illinois was exempt from that really really harsh uh, winter in, in terms of affecting the growing season that uh, grain was available in southern Illinois and was being hauled out, being purchased and hauled out and shipped north uh, by horse-drawn and mill-drawn wagon load. And mm -hmm. this was a momentous uh, point in, in people's uh, imagery. And of course, again, during this era in, uh, in American settlement, uh, imagery drawn from uh, the Bible was... Mm -hmm was a way in which uh, situations could be explained, uh, circumstances and events could be contextualized. And so the, again, this is a reference uh, for those who are not familiar in the latter uh, portion of the book of Genesis when uh, Joseph um, is ultimately becomes uh, essentially vice regent of Egypt and is in charge of the grain and puts aside enough grain when the rest of the lands are in famine and the individuals from Canaan have to journey to Egypt to buy grain. The idea that Egypt in this particular circumstance is seen as, as, a, as a place uh, of comfort, a place of, uh, of food, a place of abundance. And that is the, um, the, the cultural um, connection there and, and contextualization that we're, that we're looking at. So certainly that, is an aspect as well. We see the, the biblical uh, narrative. We also know uh, throughout American history that Egyptian symbolism and Egyptian magic have been very important. And I, I think that, that that adds a really interesting layer of mystery uh, and possibly some, some mystique to these river towns, some of which, like Thebes, has been almost lost, uh, and others like Memphis, I realize that's not in Little Egypt, but certainly part of this uh, larger delta region that had become uh, sprawling metropolises and, and, you know, as Memphis is world famous. Exactly. And uh, if anyone's curious, if it's just isolate the, 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 the fact that that area ended up with 
so many Egyptian names is isolated. It's not. We actually have a number of Egyptian uh, place names in the Ozarks proper that were named <laughs> later in time. And that to me is really fascinating. Uh, just the the overall association and fascination uh, with Egypt. And, and again, some of this, I think, stems uh, to, to an appreciation for Egyptian mythology and its role in classical literature. Some of this may be associated with certain aspects of esoteric arts, and some of it is straight out of the Bible. Exactly. I think, and I think it's a combination of those, those factors. And if anyone's curious, um, in Cedar County, Missouri, there is an Osiris. Um, which was established later, 1900, and specifically they chose the name because they wanted something that was different than other place names and chose Osiris because, of course, he's the god of light, health, and agriculture, which again kind of goes back to the idea of fertile land um, and uh, abundance. It, it does. And just a, just a really interesting, interesting connections on that. It, it also points to the fact that many, not all, but certainly many of the, uh, the settlers and the early pioneers uh, were extremely literate and extremely well-read. Yes, yes. That I think, I think that we often don't think about that and, and overlook that, but obviously uh, thought was given to these place names and and the connotations uh, that go far beyond just naming them after an early settler or something like that. Another area, uh, of course, is Howe County that uh, has uh, the Egypt Grove Church and the Egypt Settlement. And Let's see, it was, again, that this dates to around the 1890s when they were founded. Um, but, um, or at least the, the church, the settlement, I think goes back a little further. I think it was a little older, but they, again, they likened it to um, the Israelites going into Egypt to get food specifically. Yes. And um, I, I do find that really interesting that they uh, they were homesteading and probably, you know, having come through areas that um, now would be part of the Mark Twain National Forest and not a lot of farmland. And by the time they got to that area, the forest would have opened up some. And I can see why why they would have likened it to have arrived in the grain fields of Egypt. Yes, and <clears throat> at the same time, these are these are people who uh, have grown up reading, certainly classical literature as well as the Bible, reading about Egypt, reading descriptions of Egypt, but never actually having seen Egypt. Right, and and maybe possibly if you know by that time a few photos, but maybe not, or perhaps uh, engravings, mm -hmm. but more mm -hmm. from the imagination than 
than, than what they've seen. Right. Than the, than the, and another another aspect that we should note and just linger on for a moment is the mounds of Cahokia. Yes. Uh, I, I love the space of Cahokia immensely. It is incredibly powerful. And these, I, I think it is a misnomer. Um, I, I really think that it doesn't do it justice referring to them as mounds. These are pyramids. And they, they are much more in the Mesoamerican yes. uh, tradition. <laughs> in, their, in their original grandeur, we would have been looking at something much more similar uh, to uh, the great Aztec cities that, like yes. Tenochtitlan, um, or, or the, um, for example, the Mayan um, city of Tikal. These mm -hmm. are, there is a, there's a shared lineage, clearly, uh, in terms of the way that uh, Cahokia is uh, aligned mm -hmm. and certainly a strong inference that um, Central American slash Mesoamerican uh, peoples, uh, that there was cross-cultural pollination uh, between them and and the people of Cahokia. And yeah. we're we're looking at a at an empire in essence, you don't <clears throat> two thousand years ago, you don't build a city uh, and a ritual site like Cahokia uh, without having some sort of appellation of empire. No, no. And certainly, it, it, you you have to remember it wouldn't have been just completely isolated and you know, a couple thousand miles from any related culture. So, um, and another aspect I think that um, is easy to overlook that how Cahokia and other mounds in the region could have inspired allusion to Egypt is that many, there were many mounds that are now completely gone or are reduced in size from what they were when, when settlers were coming in, even uh, in the 1850s and 60s, there were mounds in downtown St. Louis that were hundreds of feet high. Yes, and <clears throat> St. Louis is such, such a fascinating space. I mean, obviously it's fascinating for all of its city history, but the space itself is really fascinating, and it makes you wonder um, how how much various energies were dispersed, and how much various energies somehow mm, informed other things, perhaps without people knowing. I know it's later on the on the list, but if possible, I'd like to jump into some of the architecture, the Egyptian architecture with St. Louis. Okay. 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 I going over the uh, the photos. I mean, it's a, it's obviously it's a brief survey uh, for tonight, but really, really interesting. Mm, essentially, Egyptian revival style uh, structures, particularly in St. Louis. One of them being the Civil Courts Building, and mm -hmm. 
these these are buildings that certainly now 60 70 100 years afterwards uh you know as time goes by as the decades march on that you you know follow, following generations growing up within the city etc could look at these and go okay it's a big building without mm -hmm. realizing that not only an enormous amount of craft went into the the construction but that these buildings are are making are paying deliberate homage to very specific motifs and meanings from Egyptian lore. Mm -hmm. I I agree, and and you do see it not only in St. Louis but across the Ozarks. I mean, there there are some examples even here in Joplin. Um, the Sky Shrike Temple is one. Um, some of the um, more grander mausoleums um, uh, in the area, particularly the Schiffer Decker mausoleum uh, is Egyptian revival, complete with sphinxes and um, uh, just very impressive and unmistakable of the uh, influence. It is now, you know, the one of the I'm going to actually reference uh, the McLean Mausoleum in Bellefontaine Cemetery in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's for, for those who are not familiar, it's a, a very imposing block structure with an obelisk on top. Yes. And then looking at the, uh, the designs and the motifs, when you know what it is, this is just me, my opinion, when you know what it is, and you're making references to, uh, for example, the necropolis, when you're making references to, uh, to Luxor, these types of things, and you're looking at that, then you look at it and you recognize, oh, I get it. I see the comparison. Mm -hmm. Now, for me, uh, I'm accustomed to images of Egypt, and uh, Egypt does not look like um, a Missouri cemetery full of oak trees and <laughs> no. maple tree. And so the this is this is you know just funny confession on my part, but the lack of topographical contextualization for the mausoleum throws me off and may traditionally makes it more difficult for me to recognize the Egyptian revival style because I'm looking at everything else as well. You're just you're just distracted, right? <laughs> I'm I'm very distracted. Um, distracted by the trees. It's a Celtic thing, uh, but but also, for example, you know the the obelisk on top looks like the Washington Monument, and mm -hmm. for the reasons that the Washington Monument is an obelisk, um, but in that regard, you know it's also I think uh, sort of historically and culturally sometimes difficult to pull ourselves out of the scene and recognize not, oh, that mausoleum in St. Louis looks like the Washington Monument. No, they're both paying homage to something much older and much more classical. That's that's very true. And um, in, in this particular article, they referenced the, the Frank uh, Spikerman Mausoleum in Calvary Cemetery, which is, again, very... Um, a prominent Egyptian revival edifice, um, and um, 
again with the sphinxes so forth and this is similar to what ones you would find in the Joplin area as well and one one um another association that is common to some of these buildings is that they were built by masons yes particularly some lodges yes and um and of course um um, symbolism and um, motifs used by the Masons go directly back to ancient Egypt. So um, they, the Masons, uh, were instrumental in the revive the Egyptian revival movement. Um, and we don't always think about it, but they were. Uh, a, a movement and uh, very much a presence in uh, this area yes. in the Ozarks and a lot of things a, a lot of public works actually go back to those efforts in a lot of places <clears throat> they do and even some of the oh oftentimes it's just referenced as national park architecture uh, mm -hmm. the, the the 1930s depression era um, CTC construction uh, of a variety of of uh, park buildings sometimes state parks sometimes national parks etc uh, sometimes they're referencing or being informed by mission style sometimes they're being informed by the arts and crafts architectural mo motifs and movement but at other times you do see um, this Egyptian revival um, being brought in in terms of the lines, in terms of the, the placement of windows, in terms of these uh, uniquely imposing structures mm -hmm. in, in, in places that, again, these, whether, whether we're talking about particular Masonic lodges, whether we're talking about mausoleums, whether we're talking about uh, other more public structures, they tend to get built into the system, into the, the, the fabric of of the land and then a couple of generations go by and you just go oh yeah that's the, the whatever building without putting the the effort and the thought into the fact that these this was not a uh, a strip mall project these yeah. are these are works of art uh built with the with the intention of lasting uh for generations Yes, I and I, I and I and I just know from my own research and having done tours at uh, at the cemetery here in Joplin with the Schiffdecker Mausoleum, that um, the the money that went into just the mausoleum in today's figures is about three million dollars. What um, I mean, obviously the <clears throat> first of all, it's a, it's a phenomenal amount of. It's a, it's a public display of wealth, yes. which is appropriate for an Egyptian style mausoleum. Yes. Uh, the, the, it the, was. The ostentatiousness of that speaks for itself. Uh, coming back to uh, the location, I just want to dive into this for a moment. Uh, your impressions of the location. I know so many times in so many cases of our investigations, the cemeteries are often not haunted or not nearly as haunted as uh, urban legend or the, the local gang of uh, 
neighborhood kids would make it out to be. That said, what are your thoughts about this particular cemetery and this Egyptian revival mausoleum? Uh, Mount Hope Cemetery sits um, basically on the south side of Webb City, Missouri, between Webb City and basically straddling the, the line between Webb City and, and Joplin. Now, there, there, I have had experience and experience there, um, actually in the mausoleum, amazingly, which normally I would would not have expected. Um, I do have to say, first and foremost, it's hard for me to say whether I think it has anything to do with the mausoleum or as our experience often is, the land, because prior to it being a cemetery, there was a village there during the Civil War, um, Pilot Knob. And it's so named because it's the high point of the county. And there was a Civil War battle there in uh, 1863. So it's hard for me to, to say what, what is the nature of the haunting or activity. Now, there, there is a sort of widespread um, legend in the area about a haunting uh, in the cemetery of a, of a statue of an angel in a family plot that the angel weeps. Um, and I, I just think it's the way that weatherization has happened and how people see it at night. But my experience at the mausoleum was that we were doing we were doing a public walking tour, um, and a number of early um, area founders are buried there, and so there's a lot of history uh, to be discussed. And so they were opening up a couple of the mausoleums um, for the public tour. We get to the mausoleum, and the um, the cemetery director unlocks the, the mausoleum, opens the doors, and I walk in and um, someone else on the team walks in with me and we're kind of a, a step of, you know, in front and behind and, and cut, you know, shoulder to shoulder. And as we walk in, something electric just rushes out and threw us, you know, looking at this with each other, like, did you feel that? <laughs> so it, it definitely gave the sensation that something was in there and that when we walked in, it went out. But yes. whether it's connected with the, with the mausoleum itself, I'm not sure, or if it's connected with the land and that's generally a quiet place to proceed to. I'm not sure. Oh, uh, and some of those things are just really difficult to determine, but yeah. fantastic experience. Mm -hmm. I do, I'm gonna uh, jump, this isn't about Egyptian lore, but the weeping angel uh -huh. uh, motif I find really fascinating because it's difficult to parse it out from urban legend. Exactly. and. And again, it's 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 one of those things that it really is urban legend. 
but it's in an area that, I mean, it's a beautiful park. Um, and, and I almost, the cemetery is almost, it's more park than cemetery almost in the layout and everything. It's beautiful. And there's lots of trees and it's on, on you're on the crest of a hill, uh, depending on how night, you know, the, the light of the moon and so forth is shining. You have a lot of light that is playing off of a lot of different surfaces and you have uh, this statue that is on a pe the pedestals probably four feet tall and then the angels probably another eight or nine feet tall and um, and um, just the way it's weathered and so forth in certain light it does look like there's a stream of tears I've even heard some people say well I've seen the, sh the angel turn its head and things like that well I know I don't think the the stone angel is moving, but um, I can certainly see having been out there, you know, walking tours and so forth at, at night, that in the right light, it, mm -hmm. it could look like it's crying. Yes. In the right conditions. And, and I think that it's, again, this is a digression for, for general topics, but the it reminds me that there's a very similar story about a, an angel statue in Nachos. Mm -hmm. And I've seen the angel multiple mm -hmm. times. I, I love the cemetery in Natchez. It's uh, anytime I'm near Natchez, I go visit the cemetery because how can you not? Uh, but it is, um, it's just very beautiful. And yet I, I still find this, I find the, the subconscious motif to be really powerful because of course we are told uh, that angels are messengers from God. Mm -hmm. And yet on some level, especially when it gets applied into, uh, pardon me, statuary in uh, essentially in a necropolis, that it takes on a very eerie quality in, in terms of where people's minds go. I do, and it to me there there's a, there's just a, almost an unconscious um, connection to crying Madonna. True. You know, because they that and this angel statue too is very much a feminine looking angel, um, and minus the minus minus the wings that it. it it, it resembles a Madonna statue in many ways. And so I always, when I look at it, it's, it's, and people talk about seeing it crying, it, I, it always makes me think of the crying Madonna lore. I like that. I think that's a, I think it's a very powerful uh, subconscious reference in, in symbols and imagery impact us in ways that we're not fully aware agreed agreed that and and sometimes things that are and i think this is something that uh really impacts us today that many of the uh, the images the symbolism the uh the engravings that in the 19th century in cemeteries particularly were meant to uh, not only be very beautiful, but were intended to bring comfort. A mm -hmm. uh, hundred to one hundred fifty years later, 
we associate them with with gothic horror we we do um and it we see this come up in in various ways in in our topics that things are viewed often viewed today differently than they would have been 50 years ago or 100 years ago um and sometimes in, in surprising ways that you kind of wonder, how did we get here? <laughs> I agree. I certainly there would have been very little way for the, the people of the era. And again, I'm, I'm gonna say approximately 1850 with 20 to 30 years on both sides, uh, could have anticipated how culture today might have been, might be seeing some of these, these elements. And certainly a thing, certainly something that I think has resonance in terms of our very different cultural response is quite frankly, we have moved into an era of postmodern uh, minimalism uh, in, in many terms, you know, uh, buildings, new buildings uh, are boxes. Quite frankly, they're big, ugly boxes. Uh, that are designed to be disposable, and uh, the, the the concept of grand edifices as works of art that are also being used, for example, as a as a courthouse or um, uh, as a as an office or as a as a theater. Uh, the Gilois is a great example. Mm -hmm. That that mentality has largely been lost. So when we see things that are extraordinarily ornate, say when you walk into the Crescent Hotel and there's this immense ornate qualities to everything, it, it tends to throw us off. We're like, oh my gosh, what does this mean? Well, it means that the people cared about the structure and uh, they they wanted it to be beautiful for for in a very long period of time. But also, you know, I think about the uh, you know the the modern trend uh, of cemeteries where the the goal is to make it uh, the most efficient possible to be mown. Yeah, well, true. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> that, uh, you know, just you know, and I and I've seen it, it threw me up. I grew up with you know our family cemeteries being small rural cemeteries in southern Iowa, and uh, traditional headstones, uh, etc. Lots of iris and peonies. Uh, growing around the headstones lots of uh that sort of thing absolute nightmare to mow because uh, you have to go around everything but incredibly beautiful and the first time that we had uh you know someone who had passed away was just a friend in central illinois and we went out and there was the um the, the evergreen mausoleum and cemetery and memory garden that was a new term for me and we literally drive in and I honestly in the back of my my adolescent head go where the hell are the tombstones because yeah. every single one of them is placed just below ground so you just go over the top of them yeah flat marker mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm like that's weird I don't get that yeah I mean um utilitarian you know it I think I, I I agree. I think something is lost there, um, and you know I certainly understand the motivation, but 
yeah. the, 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 the human aspect suffers. <laughs> and, and speaking of human, uh, the peoples who came into Little Egypt uh, mm -hmm. were not dissimilar to the peoples who settled the Ozarks. No, not not in the least. Uh, well, and of course, it, it goes back a long ways uh, with settlers, you know, from the French and Spanish, etc. But then, um, after the Revolutionary War, you start getting a lot of Scotch Irish pioneers coming in and settling in the area, um, and then. Uh, those darn Yankees settled north, and and I, uh, <laughs> I love the. <laughs> I, I I I should be as a as a as a central Illinoisan. I should be taking issue with that, um, but there's there's a great quote, and if you can tell me what page it's on, I just saw it a moment ago. Uh, I think you're probably looking at page eleven. Page eleven, and great great quote. Uh, and I think it's also interesting now is it just a, a point of difference that the, the Scots-Irish in, yes, uh, the Scots-Irish in, in Southern Illinois did not have to deal with the, uh, or had to deal with this, this unfortunate Yankee influence. Um, I say that tongue in cheek as as a former Yankee, but uh, a much earlier than the Scots Irish in the Missouri Ozarks did, uh, right? We're looking, uh, for the obvious reason, but <clears throat> they <laughs> um, and this is actually from uh, a book by Michael Clean referencing witchcraft in the Ozarks, which we're going to get into, but the fact that the Scots Irish. Who immigrated again from Virginia, Kentucky, and the Carolinas. Notice the theme. Um, viewed the Yankees, quote, in the colorful words of one historian, as a skinning, tricky, penurious race of peddlers filling the country with their tinware, brass clocks, and wooden nutmegs. <laughs> I will just pack up my wooden nutmegs and go home. Um, <laughs> Might leave the brass clock. It could be useful. <laughs> it could. <laughs> and, and, and this is really the, the beginnings, I think, the, the strong beginnings of that cultural stratification. We're talking about geographical stratification. Uh, certain people stratifying to the north, certain people stratifying to the south mm -hmm. uh, geographically. And that... Uh, the, the the individuals the the Scotch Irish, uh, as as is noted actually in this article, were mm, renowned for their quote unquote superstition uh, mm -hmm. and connection with witchcraft and, and sorcery. Whereas your mm, hardy uh, um, Great Lakes region Yankees were interested in industry. Yes. Now, of course, I mean, if we go back a little further, you know, those same Yankees were very much interested in, in witchcraft and, and so on and so forth 100 years earlier than migration into this area. So um, 
there, but but they had moved on to cat to uh, to industry and and um, pragmatism. <laughs> yes, and, uh, and commerce. And uh, commerce, yes. <laughs> and and this this I think is also this also hints at the beginnings of um, really imprecations that are are directed toward the Ozarkers. The idea that uh, you know, lazy, shiftless, et cetera, et cetera, uh, being written by uh, you know a, a, an industry culture that is obsessed with getting ahead, and the fact is that these are very, very different peoples, and it's very, it can be very confusing now post cultural homogenization, looking on the outside, because quite frankly, we all kind of look alike. And in more or less act alike and and, and uh, approach our livelihoods alike, etc. Uh, <laughs> that <clears throat> again, that that uh, that that separation of uh, individuals coming from a uh, party sometimes obsessive compulsive work ethic and the desire to further manifest destiny and you could argue that the scots irish coming westward were embracing manifest destiny as well but to such a large degree the mindset was subtly shifted to i want my chunk of land mm -hmm. and i want to be left the hell alone yes um and some of the northerners did the same as they went on, you know, west, but um, were, but there are nuances. Yes. Even and, that. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I'm, I'm going to draw the connection because I always draw the connection, whether I need to or not, is that there is a unique Celtic quality to the idea of I want my chunk of land on the side of a mountain, and I want to be left the hell alone. And, <laughs> and, and whether that is getting expressed um, in, <laughs> you know, in West Virginia or in Iowa uh, or in Missouri or in Galicia, it usually expresses itself the same way. Well, I mean, that's very true, and, and you can extrapolate that that mindset goes a long way to explaining a lot of the range wars in yes, the far west as well. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and, you know, and in that regard, just speaking to early, early 19th century lawlessness in the Southern Illinois space, well, there was a lot. There, there was. Um, before we get into that, you hinted at um, the uh, the fact that the Scotch Irish in the area seem to be obsessed with magic and sorcery. Yes. Uh, and let, let's. I, I know we're going out out turn a little bit from what we had planned, but let's dive into that for just a minute. Absolutely. Um, 
And I, I as as a segue directly into that, which I was really wanting to get into witchcraft in Illinois country. Um, I just want to say that I have some, I have a small amount of milk in my refrigerator and it's gotten soured and I'm looking for someone to blame. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, you got me. You got oh, me. <laughs> I wasn't talking about you. I, <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't sour your milk. I wouldn't sour your milk anyway. <laughs> Important distinction. Important <laughs> distinction. The, I I realize when you look at the the historical situation of it, um, a great deal of early settler survival depended upon milk cow and the and the milk. Yeah. Uh, so it uh, survivability and your milk went hand in hand, and it it did. And um, and 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 that importance worked against Eva Lautner. It did. It did. Um, the cattle witch. The uh, of course, Eva was not the 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 first witch to be associated with the milk spoiling, um, no. the cows becoming ill. But and and again, my. Disclaimer on this is that I, I understand um, the significance, the survival aspect and the significance that was placed on, on milk cows at that time. Mm -hmm. That's oh, said, well, I'm, and, and, I, and I, I appreciate as well, you know, even getting into the aspect of, of magic, but um, I grew up on a cattle ranch, but before my parents just ran a beef ranch, they ran a dairy so believe me i you know the the idea of the importance of the milk and and idea of of uh spoilage um it's was ingrained in me very early so i <laughs> that, that, that as as somebody who has actually based on my training etc i don't typically drink a lot of milk um, i don't either actually <laughs> <laughs> Upon the review, this is what I think is funny. Upon review, uh, and just the witchcraft lore as a whole, there is this little voice in the back of my head that's going, "Why were the witch was so obsessed with with milk?" Um, apparently, they were not lactose intolerant. That's a terrible yeah. joke. It just made me giggle at about three o'clock this afternoon. As I was, it's, it's <laughs> the, the milk witches. Um, beware the milk witch. But. That said, we do have a very special Illinois cattle witch to talk yes. about. Yes. Um, Eva Walker. She, um, let's see, I just lost my, lost my place. <laughs> uh, page 11 on our notes. Page, okay. that and this is actually very early on um, somewhere you know the um, early uh, Williamson County Illinois history of essentially in the 1818 to 18 really you know very early in the 1800s mm -hmm. yes and um, and, and uh, there there was an account of she was blamed for 
for the uh, cows losing their milk. <clears throat> and and, I, and I, one thing for people who aren't familiar with cattle, um, a cow losing its milk was important. What, what could be dire because then if the cow was with calf that the calf couldn't feed, couldn't nurse. Yes. <laughs> so you might lose a calf. Mm -hmm. um, but basically the, the accounts of supposedly how she did this was interesting that she would hang towels on, on her back porch and that she would basically ring the corners of the towels uh, over buckets and that she would end up with buckets of milk and the neighbor's cows would be dry. Yes, so she was using supernatural powers to milk the cows from a distance. Yes, uh, and certainly that would be quite a trick. It would. Um, she also <clears throat> was accused of using witch balls, which sounds stranger than this. Um, it is, is actually, it's associated with Pennsylvania Dutch, but it's also associated with Native American heritage, particularly the Delaware. Mm -hmm. uh, and the idea that a, a pellet, um, a magically imbued pellet, uh, could be enchanted essentially into someone or into yes. something and that you use that process to cast a spell or a hex and mm -hmm. if in in concept it it's one of those things that really you know when when you're say the person that believes that you are a recipient of this hex and things are going tragically wrong. Illness is befalling you. Uh, your your milk cow that you're dependent upon for survival has dried up or has become ill, etc. And you know you and and the idea that there's then something inside of you, you know, something that's been magically placed inside of you that if you don't get it out, it's going to kill you. Exactly. Um... And it's it's interesting that this lore is in this area because uh, an, a, another tradition that people would not associate with Southern Illinois is that there there is a, a, a sort of a deep history of voodoo. Yes, I found that particularly particularly fascinating, and it's tying to uh, the original French uh, involvement in the region. Yes, uh, that uh, actually brought a large contingent of um, slaves from the Caribbean into Southern Illinois to Port de Chartres, um, which is um, in present day Monroe County um, for a purported silver mining operation, which Ultimately, there really was no silver. Ultimately, there was coal. But um, and as early as the 1720s and 30s, there were several hundred slaves, um, and so you had a large contingent of uh, African Americans from the uh, Caribbean practicing voodoo. So that kind of lore 
is very analogous to that tradition as well. It is, and you are looking at, you know, again, I, I would, I wonder how many people in, in the region, uh, I wonder how many people in Monroe County necessarily grew up knowing that, you know, in, in 1726, there was uh, 129 uh, enslaved Africans who were brought to the county and that in addition to that, as part of essentially the French empire, they were under, uh, you know, under the imperial rule that included uh, the black code. Yes. Uh, forced uh, acceptance of Catholicism. And then in the case of, uh, you know, the 1724 black code of Louisiana, that there was a prohibition between uh, Blacks, whether they were slave or free, uh, having any marriage whatsoever with whites. Yeah. Well, because it, it came down to power, power struggles. Yes, uh, very much so. And I thought this was really interesting. Uh, <clears throat> uh, historians Alexander Davidson and Bernard Stuve, um who were both uh, descendants of uh, the French living along the Mississippi River, noted, quote, it was a very common feeling among the French at that time, in the 1700s, uh, to dread, uh, to incur in any way the displeasure of certain um, uh, people under the vague belief and fear that they possessed a clandestine power by which to invoke the aid of the evil one to work mischief or injury to person or property. It is. It really speaks to the, uh, the 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 unease that was part of the undercurrent of this. Because uh, on one hand, you have uh, the essentially the the individuals within the mass masters, uh, you know, instilling fear to prevent rebellion, etc. But they're also living in immediate and close proximity. These two people groups being in very very close proximity. And quite frankly, the Europe, for the Europe, many of the Europeans, there was a certain amount of dread and fear of the enslaved peoples they were over. Very much so, and and that, and probably the culmination of that is the the legend of of uh, the witch trial of the slave Manuel in 1785. Um, yes. Yeah. And while it's interesting because often in discussions of the Salem witch trials, people are under the assumption that there were witches burned at those trials, and there weren't any. Um, however, we did have such an instance in Illinois. Which is very, very fascinating. And, and so uh, disturbing. Yes, very disturbing. Um, um, and for anyone wondering about the connection with the Ozarks, there there were incidents uh, somewhere uh, here uh, later that not connected with witchcraft, but that there there was a uh, execution in in southern Missouri in the eighteen fifties for um, a triple murder where two slaves were burned at the stake. 
which is, again, it is difficult for us, I think, now in many ways to wrap our heads around this level of violence and this level of uh, of execution. Yes, I mean it's 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 travesty and and very tragic, but it 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 grew out of the similar fears as you described the French having um, uh, along the Mississippi of of an incident that that uh, a triple murder with uh, exceedingly gruesome and 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 um, uh, horrifying in its brutality that in, that engendered this fear that created this reaction. Um, and I, I think in both instances, it, it speaks to how ironically, groups that are in a, a superior power position end up being so terrified that they overreact exponentially. Well, and it, it's, I think it also speaks very, very fluently to the fact that human beings, particularly human beings in groups, when they are afraid, lose a great deal of rationality and lose a lot of their humanity within the process. Yes, very much so. It's, I was mm, looking at several from our, our journal journal article references. There's uh, mm -hmm. a handful of things I thought was really fascinating and fun mm -hmm. to talk about. Uh, again, uh, uh, folklore from quote-unquote Egypt. This is uh, from the Journal of American Folklore in 1941 by Grace Partridge Smith. And the Egypt in question is Southern Illinois. Found it very interesting that there is a, a reference to a nightmare hag, which is associated with uh, South Carolina low country. Yeah. Uh, there was an old man who insisted that the witches rode him because he woke up uh, more tired than when he went to sleep. Uh, it was this way. The witches came down the chimney, took a bridle from behind the door, put it on and rode him everywhere. He wondered if there wasn't something he could do about it, for he knew the witches had been riding him. And that that's a boo hag. That's a boo hag. Um, and and again, uh, is a good illustration of the lore coming west with the same, you know, Scotch Irish descendants. I always found it interesting that the cat witch. Um, yes. Again, uh, it's a common theme. And, and that's based on the fact of keeping the cat away from a corpse. Uh, this is this is straight Scott Irish. This is Scottish. Yeah. Uh, great on the mm, Scottish. And and I, I find that, you know, and specifically from the Journal of American Folklore, a family which lived near a graveyard had one of its members fall sick and die. He was in a coffin under an open window and no one was sitting with him at the hour of dusk. One of the family went into the room. When she got there, she saw what appeared to be a cat, unusually large and not at all like an ordinary house cat, for it was unusually long-bodied. The cat was crouched on the windowsill, ready to spring on the body. She screamed, and the cat then leaped out the window and left. The family was careful then to keep the window closed. They felt the cat was supernatural and had come to get or collect the soul of the dead person. Mm -hmm. and, and there are various Scottish... Um 
lore about cats and stealing souls, um, not only of the dead, but also of the living. Yes, and that, uh, and one of the things that I, I come back to when you're not in a particularly given situation, you can look at these as very superstitious, it's very silly. Uh, we can look down our noses at these experiences, so on and so forth. And it's certainly possible that this is a, a chunk of folklore, a folk tale that uh, was a you know a very rural, several hundred years old version of urban legend, and that's fine. But I also can say that particularly at moments of death, um, moments of transition, liminal spaces, there are times that animals will show up and act unusual in ways that can be either uh, helpful, uh, actually comforting, or in ways that are extraordinarily unsettling. Very true. And, and um, that happens often when people are experiencing paranormal activity as well. So uh, yeah, yes, it is. Which so, is something to watch for. I was also fascinated um, within the uh, the folklore journal reference. It begins on page 51, uh, the pig witch. Uh, the witch who turns oh. herself into a pig and drinks the milk. Um, yes. We're back to the milk motif. Uh, <laughs> now, interesting that the informant in this particular case was Dorothy Pemberton of El Dorado or El Dorado, who heard this story from her aged grandmother, a native of Ireland. Found that particularly uh, a fascinating reference. The, yep. the story itself, an old woman of the neighborhood who lived by herself, went out one morning to milk her cow. As she came up, she saw a large black sow, that's for those of you who don't know, is a female hog, uh, sucking her cow. But as she got closer, the sow ran away very rapidly. When starting to milk, the old woman got scarcely any milk at all. The same thing happened almost every day. She told her son, and he said he had heard old people say that witches often took this form and milked cows. Because that's just something we know. Um, the, Apparently. I guess. Um, the way to get rid of the witch was to draw a picture, um, nail it to a tree, and shoot the picture with a silver bullet. So he did this, and a few days later, some old woman who lived down the road sent for someone to come and see her. She was very sick. So he went, and she asked him to, quote, please dig the bullet out of the tree, for she was suffering badly. He saw... The old woman had been shot and wounded. Thus, the son made the witch promise that she would quit her witch work and leave the country. Then he dug the bullet out of the tree and the witch left. Interesting. Um, this, so does that this, make her a werewitch? <laughs> or a werepig? <laughs> oh, the... First of all, I find, and this is not uncommon, this this could be a story right out of Vance Randolph's work and collections oh. from the Pineville area. Um, but the use of sympathetic magic uh, to protect or attack witches who are attacking or harming you or your livestock or your family is very interesting to me. Yeah, it, it is it is to me too. And 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 of course you have those same um, practices in Celtic witchcraft, in voodoo, in various um, uh, 
traditions that again just does make you wonder that is there a little something to two things when so many traditions use the same elements using the same elements which is such a good point for people who are not familiar what's what would be your description of sympathetic magic um basically using something to have an effect that represents something to have an effect on another person or a situation. Um, and um, I guess, you know, sort of in, in, in a, a modernist perspective, it would be a focal point. Right, right, a focusing agent. <clears throat> but then in, in popular 20th century culture, it's a voodoo doll. Yes, the, the, the puppet uh, is always uh, always used, which I, is interesting because traditionally, I mean, you do have puppets as one type of sympathetic magic, but uh, more generally, you know, fetishes uh, uh, as a more general genre of sympathetic medicine, uh, magic. And another another entry in this journal that I thought was really interesting was the Spectre Hound. Yeah. Uh, on page 55. And the fact, of course, it, it references a, a hellhound, um, mm -hmm. but it also a term that I had not, was not previously familiar with, which is corpse dog. I had not heard that either, which, but um, uh, I find that really, I like, I like that term. It, it, it made sense. Um, and again, they're, in that sense, they're referencing them as familiars with witches and the devil uh, being in, and then the familiar being in the guise. Um, but um, that was a, that was a new term for, for me anyway. I'm not sure exactly where that comes from. I specifically, I'm not either. I think that um, the, the, the story in reference uh, simply states, a certain family was reported to have a superstition that a large black hound came scratching at the door when anyone was about to die. The belief had held for several generations. One day, a scratching and whining was heard at the kitchen door. The window was then raised to get a better view of what was going on outside. What should, what should be seen but an enormous black dog at the back door. A short time later, there was a death in the family where their grandmother died. Now, it does, it does remind me, there, there is Scottish lore, and I know this was lore in my family as well, that um, if the if dog came and sat in front of someone in the house and howled, it was a sign that that person would soon die. Yes, yes. Uh, almost like a banshee. Right. And, you know, you know it, also, it also speaks to this, this idea, uh, which is not difficult to wrap your head around, that dogs and other animals have uh, the ability to see into, to see into the veil. Right. And, and I think there's, there's certainly enough anecdotal evidence even today and you know, modern times to suggest things of that nature. 
I think so, and I, and I I've observed it in in a few situations. So, um, mm -hmm. very interesting. I I have as well. <laughs> my, my little ghost hunting dog is uh, is pretty good at picking up on things. Yes, he is, and yeah, mine is as well. Is there? Uh, uh, I know we've got quite a bit of witch lore. We've also got. I was really interested in this headless phantom on page fifty-five. Uh, that's exactly that's exactly where I was heading. I, I yeah. do like the fact that the this is a headless phantom that is a woman. Usually, he headless phantom are men. It is. Do you want me to? Do you want me to? To to sure. share it and then we'll we'll discuss it. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, in the hilly, rather wild region on the outskirts of the Shawnee Forest Preserve, a headless woman is frequently seen. Everyone has a different story. Some say the woman is headless and wears a black dress. Others say the specter is red-haired and dressed in a very long white robe. The country people think. This ghost is the wife of a horse thief who was hung not so long ago from a cottonwood or sycamore tree near the road. This is a low, lonesome, flat stretch of road called Drury Bottom. The headless woman is frequently seen there, and the people say that she comes back to haunt her neighbors. Once, a man came along and saw a headless woman sitting on a bridge. All of a sudden, he struck something, and when he got out to see... <clears throat> Uh, he lit a match to find out what he had struck, for he thought it was the woman, but he didn't find anything, and he was about scared to death. Another man coming down the lane stopped his car to pick up a red-haired woman wearing a white dress. She seemed to be walking along, but when he got to the place where he had seen her, she wasn't there at all. <laughs> if it does make you wonder, is it, is it one and the same, is it, or is it the same uh, phantom? Sometimes seen headless, sometimes not. Oh, I I lean strongly toward two separate hauntings manifestations. That that's kind of what I kind of wonder. I mean, um, and and especially you know picking up the 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 woman that they see walking. That's not a very. I mean, it, that's not a real uncommon kind of haunting. Um, there's a pretty famous one actually in the Chicago area um, of uh, a woman that is seen in a particular area and people will stop and sometimes even she gets in the car and, and, and says where she wants to go and as they get down the road they look over and she's gone. So, uh, but uh, the headless phantom one is a little more interesting to me. It is, and and of course, there's there's a reference that she is um, in waiting or in mourning, even in death, mm -hmm. over over a man who was executed, but mm -hmm. it does not explain her. No, no, and and unless her appearance is to evoke the 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 image of a of, of Haman um in some way um and I'm not suggesting that that's the case I'm just trying to speculate of, of why um 
or perhaps it's just someone that we really don't know why they appear that way. Um, Very true. Very true. It's the, um, I'm going to reference uh, Southern Illinois Phantoms and Bogies by Jesse Harris and Julian Neely from autumn of 1951 in Midwest folklore. Um, in page 175. And I thought this was, was really interesting and uh, um, a little, more than a little sad, um, halfway down on the page of 175. Before the highway was built through Doug Hill, the old road went by the cemetery. The new one goes through it. The hill is located east of where used to be a woman who would come out of the cemetery at night and walk up the hill with anyone who came along the road. Most people were afraid to travel the road at night because of her. No one ever had enough nerve to ask what she wanted. One night, a drunk from Jonesboro came by and asked what she wanted. She told him to cover up the end of her baby's casket, which had been washed out when Clear Creek overflowed. It sobered him up, so the next day, he and some fellows came out and found the casket, and the woman was never seen anymore well that's that's interesting that that it led to actually finding the casket well and and again i think this really speaks to to something that mm, I'm, I'm interested in it it doesn't seem to be most largely reflected in popular culture about ghost hunting quote unquote today we, a lot of our uh, paranormal experiences in terms of popular consciousness um, deal with the sense of spirits being trapped. Um, yes. We get a lot of questions about that and something that we talk about quite a bit in the sense that spirits are not necessarily trapped. Most likely they're, they're often in the location they are because they want to be, um, not because they're somehow negatively tethered uh, to, uh, to to something. Not saying that that's impossible, but it seems a lot less likely based upon our research. But in the 19th right. century, uh, ghosts were typically not thought of as, you know, the reference material does not does not technically associate them with a with a uh, with being a tethered with being a a trapped soul, but more of unfinished business. The fact that something needs to be resolved in the in the mortal realm, and they've come back, and in some cases have to stay stay within this space uh, until a resolve occurs. That's very true, and I think part of that is that again, as we alluded to earlier in the in the, in the episode, that the meanings of things or how things are perceived change over time. And I think that in part from media, visual media, like movies and so forth, in the 20th century, we've gotten fixated on the notion of the haunted house that right. versus the ghost itself. So um, we, we, see, we see the gothic looking rundown house of oh, that house is haunted. And for some reason, we seem to think that it's like a magic square that uh, somehow uh, contains what whatever wanders within. 
and instead of the ghost being the haunting. Mm -hmm. That's very true. And it, you know, really, I, I think one of the things that I find particularly fascinating about the study of the paranormal is it challenges us in terms of our own uh, preconceptions. Yes. And I think for some reason we are, I mean, certainly this, this account at Doug Hill uh, shows that people were startled and, and, and put off by running into a, a apparition on the road. But I think we, we seem to put ghosts in our boxes and make ourselves feel better that they can't come out of the house. So I'm okay as, I, as long as I stay out here. And maybe in part because we're, we don't walk the roads as much. We don't walk these empty spaces as much as we used to. So one, you're not going to run into them as much and it's a little more comforting to us in our very insular uh, existences inside our houses and the, the outside is viewed as something other. Very much other. It's easy to become insular. And I think that that is also something that impacts our position, our idea of the haunted house. Our houses become our castles. We leave our castle and we travel by vehicle to another location, to another, essentially another castle. We're, we're not within a slow transit um, in, in this regard. So I, I think that there's a lot of paranoia, paranoia associated with the, the house haunting because we absolutely want our house to be safe, to be un, unmolested by the spooky things. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Now that that being said, I I, I have um, actually some of my more um, memorable encounters with apparitions have been on the street on the road. So, mm, what's what's one of your most memorable? I'm just curious. Um, one was actually um, along 32nd Street in Joplin, Missouri, uh, actually FF Highway, because it was further east. Um, and uh, driving out towards I-49 to actually go south. Um, and I was, um, I was in one car and um, another attorney was following me because we were, we were both heading the same way. Um, and I'll, I'll tell tales. It was Jeff and her, you've met her and, yep. um, drive it, just driving. It's like nine 30 in the morning. I have to have to go to Neosho, uh, be there. I think it was 10. And, um, the last thing I'm thinking of is a ghost. And, um, as I'm driving, I see cars in front of me veer into the inside lane, like they're avoiding something. And as I, I see what looks like a, a man, young man walking along 
the edge of the road, but he's not walking quite straight line along the right away. He's veering into the lane. And so they're going around him. And I, so I start watching him thinking, you know, kid's going to get hit. And um, as it get closer, realize he looks like he has walked out of, you know, the grapes of wrath. Um, as far as what he's wearing, uh, he's got a bowl haircut um, and um, a leather knapsack over his shoulder. Um, I can still see his face. Um, it was just very clear. But the whole image was just slightly askew in that the coloration was not quite right. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a very bright sunny day, bright green grass, everything around blue sky. And it almost looked as if you had cut an image out of a magazine and put it out there. And it was slightly shimmering. And, you know, I, I'm in a hurry. So that's why I didn't stop. But, you know, go past and I'm watching the rearview mirror and he just keeps walking. But he had this smile on his face. He really looks like, man, he just got the new job. He got the girl. You know, everything's just going great. And um, this is just before we get on the highway. Get on the highway. And I called Jeffrey behind me and I said, you see that guy walking around along the road and she goes oh you mean the guy who looked like he walked out of the prop room for a movie <laughs> depression and I said yeah and um so what'd you think and she goes well I don't think he was really there <laughs> and yeah. you know but it, it, it's one of the more vivid things I've ever seen that uh but, and people were reacting to it, but it was not quite real. Yes. <clears throat> and, and I think that there's, there's something to be said for these experiences that when they happen, you intuitively know that something is different. Something has changed within the space. Mm -hmm. that, and whether it's the the cat on the windowsill um, overlooking the corpse, whether it's the, the figure on the roadside, something on a very primal level or a, even a subconscious level triggers and says, this is not normal. Exactly. And I, and I, I can tell you that, I mean, and that's been, oh, that's probably been 10 years ago, but Every time I drive that stretch of road, I always watch because I, you know, am I going to see that that again? And just kind of sort of continuing on the the roadside phantom aspect again from the uh, uh, Southern Illinois Phantoms and Bogies, Jesse Harris and Julian Neely, Midwest Folklore, in Autumn, nineteen fifty one, page one seventy five at the bottom. I'm just going to to share this for our discussions at the time. Soon. Informants seem to agree that a Civil War assassination gave rise originally to, to the belief that Doug Hill is haunted. Uh, this, these in the know, however, do not agree on the victim. One says it was Bill Batson, a guard searching for a runaway soldier. Another says it was two Confederate spies. Others say the victim was a provost marshal named Welsh, who was ambushed and murdered on the hill by deserters from the Union Army. Um, 
Mr. Martin mentioned above said that John Treese, an 80-year-old man living near the hill, told him the following story of Welch's murder. This would have been the provost marshal. He took two or three of these deserters whom he had captured into Jonesboro just as peace was declared, but they were, re they were released. On his way home that night, he crossed Doug Hill, a lonely wooded section. He was shot through the head with a rifle, supposedly by the very ones he had so recently turned over to the Union authorities. The horse he was riding was tied to a tree a short way up the hollow from the place where he was murdered. The murderers were never arrested, but very soon people began to hear the story of Welch's ghost. Mm -hmm. Roadside ghost, yeah. Yeah, and straight, I mean, that that this could be straight out of the Ozarks with uh, the guerrilla warfare and the and the confusion of war, the fact that you, and I think this is a concept that we really overlook, um, the fact of, of Union soldiers killing Union soldiers or Confederate soldiers killing Confederate soldiers. It, I mean, it did happen in, 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 in various contexts. And so um, in that area, we, in the course of our you know research this past week, you know we um, noted that uh, little Egypt was a, had a very com complicated uh, situation during the war, just as the Ozarks did in in a lot of respects. That um, even though Illinois obviously was a, a free state, that there were allowance legal allowances for slaves to remain slaves for much longer than uh, elsewhere in the state because they had been there so long basically almost a grandfather clause um yeah there, there the, are uh, uh -huh. no go ahead there there are a surprising number of uh, accounts of slavery continuing in Southern Illinois. Yes. Uh, by the same token, there were some free uh, Black um, communities in Little Egypt as well, all during the same time period. And so uh, a very complex situation um, that um, really sounds a lot like the southern Missouri and northern Arkansas Ozarks during the war. It does. <clears throat> it does. And and I think it brings some context, for example, to the um, you know the the murder of a, an abolitionist in Alton, which you know I think it's I think it's fair to say that the north western tip of Little Egypt could be placed in East St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Or at least Edwardsville, yeah. And and Alton is just north, um, a hop, skip, and a jump. And and I and it really speaks to the the conflict. It speaks to the pressures. It speaks speaks to the uh, intense zealousness and in you know human cost that takes place. <clears throat> Abolitionism was easy in the Upper Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, less so 
within these borderlands and liminal spaces. Yes, and, and in, in, in ways that you know, we don't even think about today um, in discussing these subjects. Um, do we want to maybe, maybe on that note, we should discuss uh, the Knights of the Golden Circle a little bit before maybe going into Betsy Reed. Unless I, I there think, are more ghost stories you want to cover. No, I think that, I think that's good. Um, you know, that there's, it, it's interesting, very interesting to me in terms of the, the lore because it's very much Ozarks, but then not quite. Yeah. There, there are nuances uh, and particularly um, pressures that either the pressure is slightly different, you know, in terms of the, its, its facets, or the pressures are simply changed in you know, differing conflict aspects that, but so much of the, the people, so much of the war, et cetera, it's very similar, but slightly different. I find it incredibly fascinating. And, and as a continuation of that fascination, the fact that the Knights of the Golden Circle uh, were were heavily influential in Southern Illinois. They they were, and um, and in that regard, you can't deny um, ties to the Ozarks because um, actually um, they say there were more members of the Knights of the Golden Circle in Missouri than anywhere else except for Virginia. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, the fact that there was a large presence in Southern Illinois makes me think that th there was a lot of uh, coordination because it, this was a sort of far-flung or organization or at least a, an, an alliance of, of smaller groups, all with the aim of carrying on the idea of the Confederacy um, later on, particularly with the idea of building empire in Latin America. <laughs> yes, and I, you know, at it, it the, the, there's some really fascinating aspects of some very disturbing aspects, and there's some really romantic aspects about uh, the Knights of the Golden Circle. I think uh, one fascinating aspect of it is how close to home uh, regionally that mm -hmm. organization occupied. And of course, it um, having clear implications, as you already noted, in, in southern Missouri and association with, uh, at least implied association or inferred association with uh, a number of people like Jesse James. Yes. Uh, I did think it was really interesting that Knights of the Golden Circle was a, of course, it's listed as a, uh, as a secret society, although it wasn't so secret. Yeah, it's, it's kind of one of those, it's a secret, but we are <laughs> advertising. Um, you know, but the, you know, the fact that it was founded in 1854 in Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that really speaks to the uh, the porous nature of this liminal space, again, so many years hence, and the fact that we 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 grow we've grown up with 
oftentimes an oversimplified view of the of the 1850s, 1860s from our historical textbooks, particularly in elementary school and junior high and high school, that we think of these borders and boundaries as being absolute. Yeah. And they and, weren't. And they weren't. I think in many cases, you know, when you when you look at the fact that mm, before larger infrastructure say along the you know the the uh, ohio side of uh, of the of the ohio river or the indiana side of the ohio river uh, or the illinois side of the ohio river that the the peoples the settlements the communities along that river along the river would have been much more closely affiliated with the people directly across the river than they would be in, say, the state capitals. I mean, that's very true. I mean, it's, and you see that everywhere. I mean, you, you know, in any geographical region, you see that uh, it, it's a, it's a degree of a spectrum. Mm -hmm. It is, it is. And I just, I, you know, looking at that, it, to me is really interesting but then I, what i suspect probably gets people's attention more than anything else about the knights of the golden circle is the legends or the rumors of hidden gold yes because and that that's because you know when richmond was about to fall train left with basically the treasury and no one really knows what happened to it. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, you have various legends of where did it end up? I've heard legends about it being buried in Georgia. Um, and further west, it gets conflated with uh, post-Civil War outlaw legends like the James brothers and that their caches of buried money was actually uh, Knights of the Golden Circle money. Um, mm. But, you know, when you start looking at it um, and looking at the movements of the James gang and so forth, it's very likely that whatever they buried was probably from their robberies um but their association with and sympathies with the ideas of the confederacy i think has raised this very romantic vision that the james brothers were you know were basically the knights protecting the, the Confederate treasury for posterity. Um, yeah. And, but reality is that um, uh, a couple of instances come to mind. One is a, is a story told actually by Frank James' son that I forget what had happened in, in money was needed and uh, that Frank, um, this is when he in later years was living up by Carney, um, 
uh, rode out and came back in a few hours with whatever needed money. And so, it would, you know, so it couldn't have been that far away. Um, another thing that comes to mind is that in around 1915, 1913 and 1915 thereabouts, Frank and his wife moved to Oklahoma for a time period, uh, sensibly um, farming, but um, the lore goes they were actually trying to retrieve you know, buried money that they had buried um, back in the 1870s. And that while they were there, that um, Cole Younger, after he got out of prison, actually moved down there as well, and that they were trying to find the money they had buried and, and never could find it. Um, so was it the Confederate treasury? Probably not. I mean, there's not really a whole lot to hang your hat on that that train or or its contents made it this far west. Right. I mean, the romanticization of these things oftentimes obscures the their reality, and we just have to accept that uh, to a large degree, which is sometimes not very fun. But <laughs> something that I am curious as we were discussing this, as you were talking at. I was thinking about this and I'm just curious as to your thought. Something that certainly was in place during plantation era um, in, in the antebellum South and to a large degree has, has continued in various pockets and aspects of deep South culture is a strong, surprising for those of us who might not be as familiar, often not, you know, for those who aren't as familiar, surprising the strong connection to a romanticized Britain. Okay. Uh, the the <clears throat> uh, strong obsession with English poetry, um, strong obsession mm -hmm. with the Arthurian legends, a the the fact that the the Confederacy mm, inappropriately or, or in incorrectly held out that Britain was going to be their savior during the yeah. war. The, the this idea that I think um, a, a perhaps misplaced but certainly a very romantic idea that there was a a a cultural link between Deep South and and Great Britain in terms of mm -hmm. of uh, you know, association a cultural association and. And as such, the the idea of the knights um, protecting uh, the heritage and that sort of thing, while perhaps skewed, perhaps uh, erroneous, perhaps uh, poetic, but not historically justified. You can argue any of those right. things, but I'm just curious. You know, the the possibility that that this sort of Retranslation of some sort of grand Arthurian legend, you know, giving strength to the the romantic qualities of this secret society. I mean, there there may be there may be something to that. I mean, of course, in the Arthurian legend, that the you know, it goes that Arthur will return when he is needed by Britain. So perhaps the idea is that um, 
these caretakers would guard the tre you know the treasury until the right time for uh, the Confederacy to return. But you know the other aspect of the idea of when they founded the Knights of the Golden Circle was the, the golden circle was going to basically encompass a circle from the old south down into Mexico and back up. Um, yeah. Although again, you know, just the way they named it and everything, you know, you could say an allusion to the round table, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I guess if you want to say that if, if there was anything that um, historically during that time period that may have given rise to the idea that perhaps this would carry through past the Civil War was actually the Iron Brigade going to Mexico. Yes. That was something I was wanting to bring up because <laughs> there's a number of people, you know, um, <clears throat> essentially survivors, military survivors of the Confederacy that um, certainly headed to Texas and if not Texas, Mexico after the war. Right. Well, and, and most prominently, Joe Shelby and the Iron Brigade. Yeah. About 600 Missourians, so. What um, rumor-wise, or more than rumor-wise, was, was Shelby ever associated with the Knights of the Golden Circle? Do we know? Not that I've ever heard. Um, yeah. You know, uh, you know. Typically, in this part of the country, it seems like Jesse James is the one that that gets associated with mm -hmm. it, um, and in part because people. Um, attribute some of the signs that supposedly the James Gang marked landmarks with as somehow being tied to um, the Knights of the Golden Circle. Um, but most of those markings were like double J's and things like that, that um, I, I think it's, it's one of those embellishments of a romantic idea that, um, you know, that kind of grew out of the lost cause motif that it didn't yeah. really die. And, you know, um, and Jesse James was that charismatic post-war character that somehow they hung their hat on. Right, right. And that's, you know, it obviously it's difficult. It was a lot of difficult conflict aspects of all of this for the obvious reason. But I think that in a in a weird way, there is something very beautiful about the romanticization of it. Yes, yes. And going going back to Joe Shelby when you asked if he was associated, I think you know, on on reflection, I would say no, because um uh I, I think that, you know, the fact that he buried his regimental flag in the Rio Grande when he uh, went south, things like that, he um, 
you know, it, it was like a Corey cutting of the, the cord. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think he was carrying on that mission at that point. That's a very good point. And it really is. Now, in jumping subjects, um, sure. uh, documentary record of the hanging of the first woman in Illinois uh, took place in Little Egypt. Um, yes. The far eastern <laughs> border near Indiana. And it's it's quite a tale, um, Betsy Reed. Yes, it is. Uh, the, mm, and took place in 1845. Uh, she mm. was convicted of murdering her husband by poison. Yes. And I mean, I guess you should note that um, poison was not that uncommon as a means for female murderers, typically, right. of the right. period. And the, the poison in question was arsenic. Arsenic, I think, for that time period was fairly common. Uh, yeah. Later on, it seemed to become a carbolic acid everyone seemed to use. Oh, well, you know, you got to stay up with the trends. <laughs> the, um, the, 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 end, the article that I thought was particularly interesting, Illinois' first uh, female serial killer, Elizabeth Reed, was hung in 1845. This is, um, interestingly enough, on page 45 of the notes, this particular journal, I thought, had a really in-depth coverage of the mm -hmm. case. And the, the, the first aspect is that Elizabeth Reed or Betsy Reed, from what we can tell, was... Mm, horribly abused early in life. Yes, yes. She she definitely had a, a pretty tragic life. Um, starting from the fact that she was born in Purgatory Swamp. Um, yes. That was sort of a foretelling of, of, of things to come. Um, south of Palestine, Illinois, another Middle Eastern reference, biblical reference, mm -hmm. um, in 1807. And, and uh, the, uh, the, the, the main issue with Purgatory Swamp, certainly at the time, was it was uh, flooded regularly by the Embrus River. And mm -hmm. as, a, as a result of that, her, uh, she was the youngest of seven children. Her parents, Abraham and Sarah, were poor farmers, and it was also near the Wabash River, and everything, their crops kept getting washed away. And the short version is that her parents sold her to a peddler when she was a teenager. Yes, yes. Um, which, I mean, those things happened. Um, Actually, and after I, take several that, years, huh? I take that back uh, upon review. Uh, she was nine when she was sold. Yeah. And and presumably not just sold to do housework. No, well, or at least not just housework. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, after several years of being abused that she fought back, um, killed her, killed the man that she'd been sold to, 
who was a peddler and a gambler. Um, and uh, the cabin burned. She ran, hid in the woods. Um, and uh, I guess he had slashed her and she had one scar on her cheekbone um, afterwards. So um, that was the first death associated with her. Um, and is you know, it's my experience in working with uh, victims of abuse that it something like this can happen at, with very severe physical abuse or and mental abuse as well that there there's a, a point that is a sort of that breaking point that um, where they do fight back um, uh, and often in times past um, it's not you know not viewed as self-defense um, right <clears throat> Let's see, then she worked at a boarding house in Logansport, Indiana. And again, it's the same, same sort of uh, scenario as existed in the, well, Egypt in so many places. You, you had a river town and people coming and going. Um, and they think that's where she met her first husband, John Stone. They were married for 10 years. Um, she became a midwife. And um, sounds like a granny woman, basically. Right. Uh, her, her first husband left her after 10 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, she used... Uh, a bonnet and a handkerchief style veil to cover up her scar. Uh, and that combined with her personality led to, first of all, just a lot of people coming up with rumors about her. Right, right. Um, and and actually the description, it just uh, the comparison came to my mind of for people um, maybe familiar with, with the movie Unforgiven with the, the prostitute who was uh, mutilated um, that um, it would be a similar appearance. And then uh, she met Mary Leonard Reed, who's from Barron County, K Kentucky. Um, and he was 12 years older than her and, quote, a thin, frail man with salt and pepper hair, an oversized nose, and a perpetual smile. Uh, he raised wheat and corn, was also a trapper, and they lived in a cabin uh, apart from Leonard's, and, and with the exception of Leonard's niece, who was 16-year-old, Evelyn Deal, basically, there were not other people around. Yeah. Uh, and then her husband died. In 1844, yeah. Yeah, it's August 19th. Um, after drinking a lot of sassafras tea <laughs> and possibly other things. Yes. <laughs> and, and it was his 16-year-old niece who accuses um, Betsy Reed of murder. Right. 
Anne had and told um, um, and I, ironically that there were rumors of of, of hexes and so forth. Yes. Um, which over time, these are very common scenarios that this ostracized, unusual woman will be accused of, of, of dark magic and causing harm. And, but in this case, um, Evelyn's, oh no, that's not, it's not magic. She, she just poisoned him basically. <laughs> so, you know, she, uh, Elizabeth or, or Betsy is arrested what is what are your thoughts in terms of this process and this trial and and ultimately the verdict? Well, I mean, for one thing, you're in a very rural area, and um, typically, how these kinds of inquiries went, and it kind of sounds like this is the case that they would have some sort of inquest um to determine whether the deceased had passed a foul play and in this situation uh, two uh local physicians uh viewed the body examined him and determined that he had uh died of chronic arsenic poisoning um and and they did um, they did actually test the the body tissues and determine that arsenic gas was present. Um, and um, they estimated that he had been poisoned over the course of at least a week with the amount of arsenic present, which th this seems more detailed than than. Um, some inquiries that I've read from that time period. So it sounds like it sounds like perhaps they did due diligence. Um, then um, a druggist um, remembered selling Elizabeth um, the poison. And I do think it's sort of inter uh, important to point out to people that uh, buying arsenic was not nearly as unusual in 1845 or 1844 as it would be today um, because arsenic was used to poison rats etc so um, mm. having some arsenic on hand would not necessarily be you know that red flag that it would be today <laughs> if you had Very some in your kitchen sink <laughs> agreed that now there was some some interesting things. She Elizabeth was held, or Betsy was held in uh, a jail in Palestine, mm -hmm. and there were threats of lynching. Yes. And then she uh, set fire to her jail cell in an attempt to escape. Yes. Um... Although let's see, I don't think it, I don't recall it saying how how she managed to. Well, and of course this this uh, fuels the legends or the stories of her being a witch. True. Because uh, supposedly uh, Betsy had nothing to set anything on fire with, 
that she had been properly searched before she was put into a cell. Uh, court records note, residents believed Elizabeth was, quote, practicing in the art of the occult and had summoned flames from the pit of hell. Well, I mean, which in a way you, you, you find a little surprising in the mid-1840s that you, you would think that they would have been past that a little bit, but um, Um, now her attorneys did um, try to deal with this this speculation and ask for a change of venue and 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 people not familiar with the legal system maybe have odd ideas about why people would do that. The idea of asking for a change of venue is that uh, there is too much um, notoriety or speculation going on in the local population, you know, in the county for there to be an impartial jury impaneled. Um, and I think certainly from these allegations that might well have been the case. Um, and um, today it usually centers around how much has been in the newspapers or on TV that would um, tarnish people's um, objectivity. Yeah. Um, but um, granted today, you usually are not dealing with these kind of accusations, so. Um, now, something I thought was really a bit chilling, actually. On April 29, 1845, she was found guilty of murder and sentenced to be hanged. Uh, but mm -hmm. she was confined until her hanging on May 23rd, so April 29th to May 23rd. And during that time, she began eating rocks and pieces of mortar from the cell walls in an attempt to kill herself. Which I would think would be sort of an indication that she was not calling down the, the fires of hell. Right. Right. Maybe it was just a one-shot option. I, perhaps. Perhaps. Um, um, yes, I mean, it's, it's definitely a, a, a chilling description. Um, and, and you do see this in, in um, accounts. It seems like, I won't say more so, but from the 19th century where you have someone confined like this and they end up losing their mind um, in one way or another. Um, and to be perfectly honest, um, it, it doesn't really say whether or not any action was taken to try to appeal the act, the conviction. Um, you know, I would have thought that they would have attempted to do so, but um, it's not clear. No, it is not based on the documentation that we have. And of course she was uh, executed by hanging on May 23rd, 1845. Uh, her body was moved to a small cemetery called Baker, which is outside of Peaceville, and 
she was buried next to her husband, uh, the current headstone uh, under Leonard's name reads death by murder and under her name reads death by hanging. Yes. <laughs> Although, granted, it does not say that he was murdered by her, but it, <laughs> you know, third. Um, I mean, it, it's certainly, I mean, it's, it's a very tragic, um, tragic story. It is uh, on all counts and all aspects. Not surprisingly, um, she has spawned a white lady um, ghost sighting as well. Very true, very true. And um, she was the first woman in the United States to be publicly executed, um, and the only woman executed by hanging in Illinois. Um, and more than 20,000 people attended the execution. That's a crowd. Yes. Wow. And they actually took her to the gallows writing on the coffin that she would be buried in mm. i mean it um that's a that's a spectacle yes um and then afterwards they the the community tried to decide why she killed her husband and they never really concluded one way or another right Right. You know, and it's something that it's it's sometimes a very difficult commentary, particularly in these cases. And it's something that really resonated with me in terms of the, the account of the execution of the, the immediate events leading up to the execution is that. Um, you know, the. Uh, the. The 11th hour. Uh, conversion to Christianity, the writing on the coffin, the trying to come up with reasons, was she involved with another man, et cetera, et cetera. All of these being speculative aspects that really are just designed to um, essentially for the for the the local population, to feel better about themselves within this process. Yes, to relieve them of their guilt of of, of convicting her in, in this in some of their own behavior. Um, I do find it interesting that you know they do associate her with a white lady um, apparition story. Um, in fact, including one associated with the with the cemetery. Uh, that yeah. she's buried at um, mm. is traditional. And of course, you know, lady in white apparitions go back hundreds of years, um, including, you know, Mary Queen of Scots and so on and so forth and Anne Boleyn and, and everything. And, but often lady in white stories are associated with women who are, who were killed wrongly 
Yes. And that is, that is an interesting aspect in terms of the developing lore afterwards. Yes. And um, almost an implicit admission of the community's wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. on, a, on a subconscious level. Yes. But this develops afterward. It is, there's a lot of moving pieces to this particular puzzle. Yes. Um, regardless, tragic. It is. All the way around for everyone involved. And in terms of really interesting tragedy, uh, something I think we could probably close on uh, for tonight's episode is Gangsters, Prohibition, and Little Egypt. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, this area uh, saw a lot of a lot of violence. Um, and even aside from those, you know, the, the Tri-State Tornado in 1925 went through there. Uh, you had mining disasters, including uh, a couple of major mining disasters in, in the 1951 in um, the Heron area. But it's all the same area that basically had a gang war. Uh, yeah, uh, very, very much so. And specifically, um the the downstate gangsters the Sheltons mm -hmm. uh, initially in in cahoots with Charles Berger um, and uh Charlie Charlie Berger um fascinating individual um, yes uh originally immigrating as a as a child with his parents from Russia and settling in St. Louis at the age of eight. And these guys gave the, this is just, to me, this is fascinating. And these, these are guys that um, gave the, gave Al Capone's gang and the Ku Klux Klan a run for their money. Yes, um, and, and actually, well, I mean, they, they had a feud and, but but they set aside their differences to fight the clan. I, I I liked that. I I did too. And you know, I think yeah, helpful that it appears that the Shelton, uh, the Shelton brothers were were in cahoots with Charlie Berger initially, and then they were at war with each other, and then they teamed up to fight the clan, and then they were at war with each other again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it makes perfect sense to me. The the other and really interesting um, cultural mm, milieu of the early 20th century that I think is lost on a lot of people and could be very confusing initially is the fact that the Ku Klux Klan was heavily in favor of prohibition. Yes, I it. The Klan's activities were more diverse than than we often view them today. Um, and sometimes their target was white people. Yes, or, or at least at least Europe, Southern Europeans, <laughs> <laughs> particularly Roman Catholics. Uh, very much so, and 
the, <clears throat> the, the, I, I found it really interesting, you know, in terms of uh, your mm, stayed, um, you know, well settled, um, you know, <laughs> who would, who, you know, us, you know, a hundred years later, looking back without doing research would have put the uh, the women's temperance movement and the Ku Klux Klan in the same box. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you you don't you don't you don't think about that, but but for different reasons they were in the same Very box. Different for different reasons. Reasons. <laughs> Very different. Um, but the the idea of uh, of you know uncommon allies and the the issue at, at hand was a lot of the poor Southern European immigrants um, drank appropriate to being poor southern european immigrants and and uh that as a as a result was very distasteful to a number of uh you know was very distasteful to the temperance movement now and this is not to i'm i'm i want to i want to be very clear on this, I'm very much against prohibition for a variety of personal and public reasons. <laughs> um, now I'm going to reference the Centerville book that I occasionally reference. Mm-hmm. Um, the book was very interesting. It, it covers the history of, of Avenues County with an emphasis on Centerville, Iowa. It's a massive book. I uh, read it cover to cover about two years ago. And it, it it's very interesting because it deals with a lot of the social tensions and the historical mm, conflict that took place in coal mining country of southern Iowa that um, my, my, my grandfather and grandmother uh, oftentimes left out of their stories, either because they were a little just not really relevant to them or for whatever reason. And in, in that regard, uh, you have a uh, a first, you know, you have first generation <clears throat> immigrant populations coming into well established locations following the Civil War, and these first generation immigrant populations who are almost, you know, predominantly workers in the coal mines and doing really, really unpleasant work uh, for comparatively little pay were brought with them uh, their own habits, their own methodologies, and certainly in the case of the Sicilians, their own feuds. Yes. Which they then played out uh, in real time in new neighborhoods. And that combined with their Roman Catholicism and that combined combined with a mm, unique propensity violence. I'm going to say unique in the sense that it oftentimes had a slightly different flair than the violence that was already taking place. Um, like <laughs> the, um, and this is, I mean, we can laugh about it a hundred years later, um, but the uh, Southern Italian immigrants into Centerville had an interesting, not only did they have a lot of interesting ties to gangsters in Chicago, but they also had a, a comparatively high propensity for settling their feuds by with house bombings, which 
-hmm. was a little unsettling to the neighbors. Can't imagine why. <laughs> and so in terms of, you know, looking at the, these cultural conflicts, and of course, this is, you know, an, an you know, era which dynamite and arsenic are both readily available. So the sky's the limit in terms of what you can do. Very true. And, and actually, as you're describing this, it's very similar to um, uh, events that happened uh, in the very Western Ozarks um, in the coal mining fields of uh, uh, Kansas, uh, mm -hmm. Crawford County, um, including some explosions and various um, sundry Sicilian activities. So um, very much uh, happened in the Ozarks as well. And then you you throw, and to bring it back to Little Egypt, you throw prohibition in on top of this mm -hmm. when, uh, you know, alcohol for so many of these immigrating cultures, alcohol was not what was just was the way of life and still is appropriately so. Exactly. And, um, and some people may be going, okay, but why were the, the, the Shelton's and Burger, Charles Burger, uh, really um, anti-prohibition? Uh, well, they were trying to control the coal, coal mining fields and the miners drank. And so that was their customers. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, uh, the clan trying to basically bully their way in and, and intimidate everybody um, was bad for business. And so they they did um, pool their efforts and basically run the clan out of town and ba basically murdered the the clan leader and locally and uh, nothing came of it because no one would testify. Yes. It's very, it is, I mean, it's undeniably violent. We're talking yes. about uh, drive-by bombings. We're talking about shootings. And uh, during the, uh, during the point where the, you have a conflict between uh, Charlie Berger and the Sheltons, the Sheltons actually attempted an aerial bombing um, and tried dropping dynamite on on uh, on Burger's headquarters, which was right near, right next to the uh, uh, the barbecue restaurant. <laughs> yes, um, yes, they, they, it was pretty much a feud out in the open. And well, that didn't work. Then um, gang member, uh, gang members testified against um, Burger, and um, in a robbery. And that was sort of the beginning of his de demise. It was, and of course, Berger was was executed. Yes, and um, in 1928, ironically, he had been a you know a decorated officer in the in the army at one mm -hmm. point, and was uh, uh, insisted on wearing a black hood for his execution, so as not to be confused with the plan. Well, you know, you have to have some standards. I don't blame you. No. Um, 
and then uh, there, there, there was a murder charge in there as well against him. But basically, once he was kind of out of the way, then the Shelton brothers moved into controlling gambling in Peoria. I was, I was hmm, quite interested in this. Of course, I grew up in Peoria County. Did not yeah. know this period growing up. Um, <laughs> and I, I found this really interesting. The, the uh, article in reference, um, The Shelton's Downstate Gangsters by Bill Monson, uh, published in the Zephyr.com. Noted, quote, Peoria was the wildest city between Chicago and St. Louis. Various gangs, including the remnants of Compose, tried to take over the city's vice rackets. Clyde Garrison, a local gambler who had Peoria politicos in his pocket, tried to resist but didn't have the firepower for gang warfare. He invited the Sheltons north uh, from East St. Louis as his partners. Garrison would handle the politicians, and the Sheltons would provide the muscle. Mm-hmm. And and, and really, there's there's a lot of ties to the Ozarks because a lot of these same players operated at various times in the Ozarks, including elements of the Capone gang. Yes, they did. There was and it, it, mm, very interesting cause and effect at play in the in the sense that, for example, in Peoria and of course in other industrial centers. Uh, that the U.S. entering the Second World War following the Pearl Harbor bombing in 1941 made it very difficult for uh, law enforcement to contain corruption because the war effort started putting lots of money back into workers' pockets and they started spending wildly after the Great Depression, particularly on vice, which was then giving an enormous amount of money to the gangs. Yes. Um, and considering the, the amount of violence and uh, just open, you know, like house bombings, etc., cetera, um, I find it interesting that this part of of sort of the, the that era gamesters is almost forgotten whereas sort of the, the ozarks connections with bonnie and clyde and pretty boy floyd and and those and you know the barker gang etc is so romanticized i think that's really interesting i really do and you know, the Shelton's are all but forgotten. The, um, you know, and I, and I can speak from personal experience having grown up in Florida. I'm sure there's plenty of people who know that sordid history of the early 20th century, but just in terms of public consciousness, uh, after the, mm, the, the 1940s, you know, and of course, you know, one of the Shelton's was, was assassinated in Peoria in 1948. And mm -hmm. Enormous amount of violence, enormous amount of, of intrigue, and the the mm, the the crossover between um, gangs, vice, and politics, etc. That is, let's face it, it's it's unpleasant when you're living through it, and it's immediately romanticized and juicy after you survive it. Um, yeah. <laughs> it is. Not something that is part of the Peoria motif. 
you know, me growing up in the county, me being associated with the city, uh, just in terms of proximity. Um, you know, Peoria was known for um, Caterpillar. Uh, Peoria was known for, um, you know, medical industry. Mm -hmm. That's those are those are the the hallmarks of the city, you know, the modern city today. Just uh, kind of moved on past that without without the recollection of of that romanization of of the outlaw, I guess. And I, and I think that there there's mm, something I'm going to conjecture, and this is. Um, I feel appropriate across regions, particularly for rural America or you know, these juncture points. There was a. Mm, I'm 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 going to resort to hyperbole for a moment, but I'm just going to say that there was a a an almost collective amnesia that shifted after the Second World War in the sense of this intense modernization, uh, sort of a rewriting of the narrative, and. I think it might perhaps be fair to look at this case in particular and, and these types of cases, these 1930s into 1940s era gangsters as being um, contemporary um, personalities, larger than life personalities, larger than life. I wouldn't say folk heroes, but folk anti-heroes existing within the modern era, suddenly finding themselves not only assassinated and put in, you know, arrested and found guilty and put into prison, but in terms of public consciousness, suddenly being um, found also inconvenient, disposable, and ground under. Mm -hmm. by this new modernization. True. But on the other hand, then it's still a little hard to explain sort of the continued mystique of Capone and Dillinger and some of the others. It is. Um, you know, and perhaps the the swath that they 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 made was just too large to completely drown under. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, in terms of becoming some sort of uh, larger than life folk, folk anti-hero in, in some senses you know you you might argue that the fbi's efforts um to make them notorious in order to mm, give momentum to their own work in a in a weird sort of way worked backwards to to create folk anti-heroes out of a handful Whereas the the Sheltons and Berger, et cetera, just disappeared in terms of public consciousness. And I, I think I, I think that uh, that may definitely be part of it because it is a little incongruous. So um, on that note, what would you say is the um, biggest influence of Little Egypt on the Ozarks? Hmm. Oh, I, I think that perhaps not influence, but shared lineage 
of folklore. I think I think that's I think that's accurate. Um, I think it's I think it is telling to also uh, for those who seem to think that uh, the Ozarks were sort of an isolated aberration of culture, um, you know, a pocket of resistance, so to speak. Um, it gives um, another view that uh, it's not as isolated of a makeup of an area as perhaps the coast would like to believe. I agree. I agree. The, this similarity of tapestry, you know, we're, we're looking at a lot of pieces of a patchwork quilt. Um, and and I'm I'm gonna reference my one of the points that I just made with this uh, sort of uh, bulldozer of modernist culture that seems to have taken place after the Second World War mm -hmm. that has uh, placed an enormous amount of pressure on uh, regional what would be classified as regional provincialism. Uh, regional dialect, regional folk belief, regional ways of doing things, regional histories, uh, including both folk heroes and folk anti-heroes, um, the, the, the heroes and the villains, the, the connection to the land, the connection to community in a, in a more immediate sense, as opposed to a reliance upon larger, sometimes seen, sometimes unseen, uh, sometimes branded, sometimes not uh, infrastructure that is associated with, you know, the larger nation or the or the world. There's a lot of pressure to uh, to homogenize, and yet we we see these these areas and that have, for their own reasons, for for a wide variety of reasons, have consciously and unconsciously resisted that homogenization. And at the same time, there is still an enormous amount of cultural erosion that has taken place. The fact that so many of these, uh, you know, folk tales, so many of these small bits of history and association with the past have been lost. And, and I don't think that that's the, that is um, uh, inadvertent. We are um, you know, each generation, the more separate we are from our past, the more mm, essentially malleable we are and the more easily co coerced we are, uh, particularly in terms of simply being better consumers. <laughs> that is modern America. Yes, it is. And uh, <laughs> I grew up, I grew up in heavily exposed, I mean, we've all grown up heavily exposed to it, but you know, for me, and you know, just these references to this this um, gritty, um, individualistic, romanticized gang gangster wars of Peoria is almost a, a a foreign concept, and the distance. I mean, the 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 distance between me being born and 
uh, one of the Shelton's being assassinated in Peoria was three decades, 30 years. Yeah. 30 years is not that long. And what do I remember growing up about, about Peoria? It, it wasn't anything related to that. Yeah. You know, that that was part of part of the, the talk, you know, whereas I admit, you know, growing up in the Joplin area, there's still there was still talk of 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 this frontier uh, sort of mentality and, you know, you know, mob bombings in the 50s and and things. And, you know, it, it was, you know, it wasn't daily talk at the dinner table, but it was fairly common knowledge. Mm-hmm. And and I would I would mm, perhaps emergently postulate that that is something that is helped the the Ozarks remain more resistant to cultural larger cultural homogenization homogenization that the the stories uh, the the consciousness of the past has in some ways stayed more relevant for longer i I think that's i I do think that perhaps as part of it aside from just sort of the stubborn nature of the land and the people (laughs) very much agree very much agree on that (laughs) and that 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 might be a good place to end for tonight we want to remind everyone not to forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always Buying Butts and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping to bring the Dark Ozarts to everyone. On the next episode, we are going to be discussing the Wachita Mountains' surprising dark history. Catch the Dark Ozarts podcast on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Substack, or just about any other podcast platform. Thank you, everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks.